God, would you help us today as we study your word, change our minds, soften our hearts, bend our wills, that we might submit to you, our great heavenly King. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Royalty, royalty is not something we know a lot about in America. We don't experience it, I guess, except for the likes of Paris Hilton or something. But that's not royalty, right? Um, A few months after we uh, were married, my wife Mindy uh, woke up at, set her alarm for 4.30 in the morning and with sheer determination and, and I would just say devotion, she awoke at 4.30 um, to attend via TV the royal wedding of Kate Middleton. Now, Mindy did cordially invite me to attend. <laughs> I declined with apologies to Kate and the royal family. But um, Mindy wore a crown, as I remember. She literally wore a crown. She had breakfast on her nicest china, 4.30 in the morning, by herself. At later that day, she, as tired as she was, as exhausted you know, from waking up, she commented that it was the royalty, the the celebration, the tradition, the beauty, the majesty, the dignity with which the wedding took place that made every moment worth it. Royalty in America is not something that we know a lot about, perhaps, but I think it's something that we long for. If I remember correctly, it wasn't just Mindy who woke up at 4.30 in the morning that day. It was most of America, wasn't it? Something attracted us to this royal wedding. Today is the feast of Christ the King. And on this final Sunday of the liturgical year, we remember, we pause to remember that the Jesus who came to us in a manger last December will come to us again as a king. Our gospel reading for today from Matthew, it teaches us about Jesus as king. And he's not just an ordinary king. He's unusual. He's unique. He's rare. He's different from all the rest. So here are four reflections on Jesus as king from Matthew 25. Four reflections on Jesus as king. Let me give them to you all at once, and then we'll unpack them briefly one at a time. First, from Matthew 25, Jesus is a king with unique power. His power isn't national, it's cosmic. He has unique power. Here's the second reflection. Jesus is not just a king with unique power. He's, a unique, he's unique in that he uses his power with a unique purpose. So Jesus is a king with a unique purpose. Thirdly, Jesus is king over a very unique people. His citizens are different. And here's the last thing. Jesus is a king who requires a unique performance from his people. All right? 
Take your scripture insert, follow along with me, the parable, or it's kind of not a parable, but we'll get to that in a minute, of the sheep and the goats. Here we go. Jesus is a king with a very unique power. That is to say, it's cosmic in scope. It's not local, it's not regional, it's not national, it's not international. Jesus is king of the universe. At least that's how he presents himself in Matthew 25. Look at the opening verse. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another. This is a king who rules over nations. He, he actually judges them. This kind of power is not the same as Emmanuel Macron in France or Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe or Queen Elizabeth or Theresa May in Great Britain or, or Donald Trump in the States. This is the king with power over all of these. Indeed, over all the rulers of all time. He judges the nations. He has a unique power. It's not regional, not local, not national, not even international. It's a kind of power we have never seen. Power to judge all the other kings and rulers. I was fascinated this week to learn about the feast of Christ the King. You might be interested to know it's one of the more recent feasts that has been added to the church calendar in Christian history. Listen to this. This feast was instituted in 1925 by Pope Pius XI. And here are the circumstances. He instituted this feast. It was beginning the last day of October, but now it's moved to the last day of the liturgical year. He did it in 1925, just after World War I. And what Pius XI said is he wanted to remind the faithful that in the midst of what was then a very divisive spirit of nationalism globally, that there was only one king over all the nations. In the midst of a world that was cynical with atheism, secularism, the rise of communism, and this spirit of nationalism that was dividing the globe, that in the midst of all this, Jesus was the one true king. And so he commemorated, he instituted this Sunday as the Feast of Christ the King. Do we not find ourselves in the same kind of environment? Think about recent political events. Whether you're on the right or the left, there's actually a term that's been used in The Economist, in The Washington Post, in The New York Times, all over the place. They're, They're calling the spirit of our age new nationalism, new nationalism. This idea that all the countries will separate from each other, take what's theirs, make themselves the greatest. Again, whether you're on the left or the right, everybody sort of agrees. This is what's happening globally. There's a cynicism about faith in general globally. So perhaps now, just as in 1925, post-World I, we need to know more than ever that Donald Trump is not king, right? That Theresa May, Emmanuel Macron, Kim Jong-un, Mugabe, whoever you pick, 
These are not the king of the world. These are, these are those who will submit to the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. He's a king with a very unique power. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall, we sing. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. Here's the second reflection on Jesus as king from Matthew 25. What this king does with his unique power is also different. It's also unique. Let me give it to you in a sentence. This king, this king has a purpose to judge as a shepherd and to be crowned on a cross. This king will judge as a shepherd and be enthroned. He will reign as he's lifted up, not in power, but in his suffering. Uh, perhaps it goes without saying that a king should have his people's best interest at heart, right? A queen should have her people's best interest at heart. But as you know, through the pages of history, this is full of rulers who are abusive and selfish, even psychotic. Think Nero, Caligula, Ivan the Terrible, Stalin, Hitler. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. But listen, for Jesus the King, his power is carried out in a different way. That is with selfless love for his flock. Where do we see this in the text? two places. One, it's that Jesus describes himself as judging the nations, pretty powerful thing, as a shepherd. Did you get that image? That's what makes this part of Matthew 25 parabolic. It's sort of an analogy, a metaphor. Jesus is the king, but suddenly he's the shepherd and the judge, kind of all mixed in together. And then he carries it further. He's the shepherd who's dividing his flock. This is an image that his audience would have recognized. This is what a shepherd does at the end of every day. It's a common task. You divide your flock. You separate them. Isn't it interesting, though, that Jesus mixes such a powerful task with such a caring, provision-type image, a shepherd? Here's the second place we see this idea of the king having a different purpose than most rulers we know of. Jesus, his cross was his throne. Um, we, in the beginning of the passage, again, when he says, the son of man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Did you know most New Testament scholars say that in Matthew's gospel, um, Jesus was lifted up as a king and he was lifted up in glory but it was on a very different throne than anyone anticipated, in a different way than anyone anticipated. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the king whose throne was a cross and whose majestic power was manifest the moment he opened wide his arms on that cross to embrace sinners into heaven. That is the glory, the glorious purpose of Jesus the king. Who has ever heard of a king like this who has absolute power over the nations and yet uses that power as a shepherd and in suffering for the sake of another? Here's the third reflection on Jesus as king from Matthew 25. He has a unique people. 
Not just a unique power and purpose, but his citizens are weird. Let me give it to you bluntly. Jesus is the king of losers. That's us. That is to say, not the rich and powerful and wealthy and proud. Jesus is king, as it says in Matthew 25, of the least of these. Those are his people. The naked, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the prisoner. Those are the people he's proud of. Not only that, if we just let this Matthew passage stand alone, you could almost say, that the destinies of all humanity hang on the way we treat the least of these, the sick, the imprisoned, the hungry. Now, I have to tell you that on this part of the, this, this idea of Jesus having a unique people, that there is great debate among Christian scholars. This is important. There are going to be different opinions. Let me give them to you both real quick just so you know what's going on because I think it makes a difference in the passage. Some interpreters think that Jesus here is referring to poor people in general, whether they're Christians or not Christians, right? Just the least of these. Think about Mother Teresa. She would always quote this passage. She would pick up a child and, and hold that child and say, whatever you've done to the least of these, you do to me. Now, other scholars say, well, no, it's not the poor in general, because notice the interesting phrase that Jesus uses to qualify the least of these. Look at that that text. Uh, When the sheep ask him, Jesus, when do we do this to you? And the king replies, you did it to me when you served the least of these members of my what? You see that? Members of my family. The least of these Other translations read, my brothers and sisters. So some scholars say, see, it's not the poor in general. The issue here is God's people. When you serve the least of these Christians, that is, in Matthew's context, most likely these were Christian missionaries being persecuted for the faith. That's how the other argument goes. I don't know who's right. I've got heroes on both sides of the argument. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. In either reading, what's important for us to see is that Jesus the King has tied up his kingdom with the least of these. Be they persecuted Christians or just poor people in general, what kind of ruler claims for himself citizens who are outcasts, the hungry, the naked, the sick, the prisoner, as his pride and joy? Only Jesus Christ, our King. He has a unique people. Here's the last reflection from Matthew 25. He requires a unique performance from these citizens. Performance is never a good word to use uh, in church, at least not in our context, because we don't think that you get to heaven by performing well as a Christian. If that were true, uh, I would not be a Christian. Nevertheless, here's what I mean by the word performance. Uh, um, Notice in the story that neither the sheep nor the goats recognize what they were doing as being factors in their eternal destiny. This is a subtle point, but it's important. Both asked Jesus when, right? The sheep said, when did we feed you, clothe you, visit you? And then the goats asked later on, when did we not feed you? When did we not clothe you? We, we, We missed you. 
Um, New Testament theologian D.A. Carson points out that Jesus as king, here's the point, wants his people to await his coming with lives that are so transformed by their devotion to the king that they don't even realize works of mercy and love are pouring out of them upon the least of these. He uses the word, Carson does, unselfconscious deeds of mercy. That we would be so devoted to Jesus that in the course of a Monday through Friday, works of mercy are just pouring out of us. We don't even realize we're doing it. That's the kind of people Jesus wants. That's the kind of performance Jesus wants. Not trying to get good points with God, but loving him so much that obedience just follows. Let me close just by reminding us that as we try to do every Sunday, the Bible doesn't teach in this passage or any other passage that one's humanitarian efforts, right, one's humanitarian good deeds get one eternal life with the creator of the universe. Rather, in Matthew 25, as elsewhere in the Scriptures, What matters is that we are responding to Jesus. Notice how he identifies himself, that is Jesus, with the people who are being served. It's not just that you did something nice for random people. It's that you were doing it for me, Jesus says. That is to say, you were responding to me. And so, as we do every Sunday, now we have a chance to respond to the King. I hope you do it in the rest of the world, in the rest of this week. But we do it right now, one-on-one, in a sense, one-on-one with Jesus. The sheep, through their good deeds, in some way, responded to the king. The goats, through their omission of good deeds, in some way, rejected the king. Brother and sister, would you join me now with open hands? And first, make yourselves recipient of the king's goodness so that you might take that goodness out into the world, feeding the world as citizens of a king with a very different kind of power, a very different kind of purpose, with a king who cares for a people who are mostly outcast and forgotten, and a king who requires not a performance of good deeds, but performance that comes from a redeemed heart. Amen.